This is W-O-W-D-L-P Tacoma Park. Artist Experience Radio Show, and I'm Sheila Blake, and I'm here with Tom Sinakis and my husband Peter. Good morning, everyone. Today we have a unique and interesting show lined up. We are talking about Gregory Gillespie, an American artist, sometimes called a magical realist artist, sometimes just called a realist artist, and sometimes called a surrealist realist artist, and he was a painter that lived from 1936 to 2000. Most coincidentally, Sheila Blake, my lovely co-host on the Artist Experience radio program, knew artist Gregory Gillespie. We're going to talk about the art, the man, and his legacy. My relationship with Gregory Gillespie was an interesting one. In college in New York City in the mid to late 1970s, Gregory Gillespie was the rage. I remember seeing his work at a gallery, and I can't remember exactly which one, but there were three things about his work that struck me. At the time, I was a biology and art student wanting to become a medical and biological illustrator, which I was for about 20-something years. My interest was in the exact details in paintings and the exact drawing replicas of medical subject and very, was very important for research and education. And Gregory Gillespie was an expert in this kind of sense of detail on fruits and vegetables and portraits. And he was meticulous in his hyperreal aspects of his subjects, which were very often depictions of himself. This excited me in his work. As a medical illustrator, there was a need to paint so meticulously with exactness, which is important in that field of art. Well, Gregory Gillespie's interest in the self-portrait was also an interest in me, as I had one of those professors that was obsessed with the self-portrait. And and Gregory Gillespie, like Vincent van Gogh, was very interested in that as well. And also their portraits were very introspective. And, and Gregory Gillespie's self-portraits were evocative, and they certainly spoke to me. Well, in the 1990s, I was doing my own work, and it was very dark and introspective, and I revisited Gregory Gillespie's work. I was doing work with Christian imagery, and here Gregory Gillespie's modern works and late works were also reflecting not only his Catholic upbringing, but other adventures and spiritual journeys that he showed in works with collage and paint. And Gregory Gillespie didn't consider himself a collagist at all. He was a painter. Sheila, tell us your first recollections of Gregory Gillespie. Was it at Cooper Union? Tell our listeners what that special place and time was for you. Well, here's the beginning. I really can't talk about Gregory unless I'm going to talk about his wife, Fran. They were an intensely close couple, and I really can't separate them in my early memories. This all began when I was 16, and my friends and I, we used to take bike trips and uh, through the American youth hostels. And we, we took a trip through the Pennsylvania Dutch country. It wasn't our first trip at all. And these trips were organized. And sometimes there were guys who were maybe 30 years old joining us. But we thought it was part of the thrill of growing up. Anyway, this particular spring, a girl that we didn't know joined us on our trip. Her name was Fran Cohen. And it was five against one. We made fun of her behind her back. We were awful. We would just, anything we could criticize, we did. And I just, Fran was stuck in this really unkind situation. And even now I'm distressed at how we treated her. But luckily for Fran, she had to leave early to take the train back to New York to take the test for Cooper Union Arts School. And the next year I took the same test. And getting in to Cooper Union was one of the best days. It really did cement the course of my life. But there, on the first day of school, there was Fran. 
I couldn't pretend I didn't know her. It was a really small school, and I was so ashamed of my behavior. And I apologized to her. Maybe not right away, but really soon I did. And she said, that's okay. That was the way I expected to be treated. So you so you met Fran before Gregory. Way, way before I did. Wow. And uh, in my first month of my first year at Cooper Union, I was so happy to be there in this school for artists. I was so happy to be included. We all were. Right, The school was right at the top of the Bowery, and men would sleep on the steps, and nobody cared about it, or parents, nobody cared or was scared about it. We were just teenagers. So no one even knew what cool was, but the atmosphere of art school was the air we breathed. We were told right away but that by our third year, only a third of us would be there. Well, that was true for me anyway. <laughs> I learned to smoke cigarettes in the student lounge, and there was an empty room with gray wooden benches lining the sides. Yes, Tom, I do remember Tom Wesselman. He was tall and almost bald, and there were there were a few people there that were considered to be kind of like up there like the stars and they knew the teachers they had relationships with the teachers which my relationship was the teacher if i got in the elevator with them i would giggle wow, cooper union <laughs> cooper union stars is important oh my god but art school was where i truly felt right and that the first thing about being an artist was it was the highest calling especially the fine arts program And even though we did have amazing illustrators come out of that school, students didn't pay tuition, but still you had to eat and buy art supplies. Some guys drove cabs at night. I think that especially the boys felt that it was an entrance into the art world, but I didn't even know what that was. I was living with my family in Queens, and my friend Marilyn came to visit my parents' house and she told everyone at school that my parents lived in a mansion. I was completely humiliated. There was there wasn't a mansion really. I mean, but <laughs> Marilyn lived with her entire family in a one room apartment. No, two bedroom two bedroom apartment. <laughs> okay. Oh, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> but we were reaching for something great, and I felt that everyone had more ability than I did. But hey, I got in. There was no talk about money or business or success or about finding a signature style. There was just so much to learn. I didn't even understand what the word to abstract something meant or how to approach it. The classes were so rigorous, but practice, it works. I learned how to draw in a way that I surprised myself, and I love to paint. The material of the paint, putting one color next to the other, I still get that thrill. There was no time for movies, no money. My friend Lois lived on the Upper West Side, and she would leave her apartment in a skirt and a sweater, and she'd change into jeans in the subway bathroom. Wow. So, you know, was it a school like for realist paintings or was it going in the abstract no, it direction? Was really, our teachers were abstract expressionists. Right. So that's a Gregory Gillespie, in a sense, yes, didn't, didn't necessarily fit, it, fit but in. But there wasn't. Uh, it was really an education. It was learning to deal with space, composition. Uh, they had a class in materials. It was really about the very basics of of art, painting, sculpture, but we weren't pushed in a direction. Oh, very nice. That's Did you have color theory? We had color theory. We had really rigorous color theory. Oh, my gosh, that was great. Well, I'm going to introduce our listeners to the life of Gregory Gillespie. Sheila, jump in if you have anything to share okay. as I go along the way. And okay. uh, Gregory Gillespie was born on November 29, 1936, in Roselle Park, New Jersey. And... As Sheila mentioned, he was a student at Cooper Union, where some text said he had got a BFA there. Some said that was contradictory. It wasn't. They necessarily didn't call it a BFA. But what was it back then? Because it wasn't. It was a three-year certificate. It wasn't a BFA, and a lot of uh, students went on for another year, like I got you, you. know, to okay. get the BFA. But it wasn't. It was very respected. Oh, I'm sure it was. Know? So. Um, 
And when I started at at the school, there was a buzz. Gregory Gillespie was back. He'd taken a year off, and there was an excitement about seeing him. And I remember a first glimpse of this tall guy with a knitted pattern sweater, tan, brown, and red, and I thought, that must be him. Somehow in this school of New York nerds, he did have something special about him that made him stand out. And then the buzz included Fran Cohen, that she was going with Gregory. Wow, that was pretty interesting. And (laughs) there was a story that got around the school that Gregory was trying to convince her to have sex with him, and she didn't know what to do. And she thought, and she thought, and finally she was going to meet Gregory and tell him, yes, that she would. But before she told him, he asked her to marry him. Wow, that's incredible. And Fran was so happy that she ran the whole way over the Brooklyn Bridge, and Gregory did a painting of it. Oh, how romantic. Isn't that wonderful? That's, that is really it's great. Wonderful. Well, Gregory, after Cooper Union, went on to uh, the California School of Fine Arts, which is now called the San Francisco Art Institute, and he received an MFA in 1963. Well, in New York at that time, there was only one other place to be. You could be in New York, you could be in San Francisco. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) But after two and a half years, I quit school, and I threw away this wonderful opportunity. It was impossible for me to live at home anymore. I couldn't manage it at all. I got pregnant, and I'll save you the worst of it. But I took my baby hill and moved to San Francisco with all those Cooper Union graduates. They were there, and some of my friends were there. And I met and married a student from North Carolina named Vernon Pratt. Gregory and Fran were there. They had their baby, Vincent, so we did a little socializing together. I remember New Year's Eve, we were in, we went with Greg and Fran to this older couple's house, older, maybe they were 30. The, I think the older couple was interested in Gregory, that he had that star quality, and we were just along for the ride, and they had champagne and chips and onion dip. Onion dip. <laughs> that was, you know, that was a new food. Remember? Yes, it uh, yeah. Suddenly appeared. It was uh, it was sour cream and Lipton onion yeah, soup. Yeah, yeah, it was. Transformed parties. Yeah, it I, became staple. Yeah. It was, and I couldn't stop eating it, and I was embarrassed, <laughs> but I couldn't stop. And then on the way home, Fran made Gregory stop the car and get out, and she said, "Gregory, get out and walk a straight line." You have a newborn baby in the car. Gregory, walk that straight line. <laughs> she was really bossy. She was definitely neurotic. But Gregory seemed to accept it, and he seemed to even like it. I think it made him feel, feel loved. Oh, yeah. Honestly. That's interesting, yeah. Because I couldn't have gotten away with any, anything like that. <laughs> and then I was pregnant again. And Fran left me all her maternity clothes, really this pile of stuff from the Goodwill that I was really happy to have. And Gregory got a Fulbright, and they went to Italy. They were there for eight years, getting fellowships to sustain them. We kept in touch a little because Fran was pregnant again, and I sent her back the same pile of maternity clothes and baby (laughs) stuff. And the next thing, we had a letter saying, somewhere in the middle, that they'd had a baby girl, Lydia, who was now five months old, and thanking Vernon for the Polaroid camera, but they didn't have money for film. Wow, so you really did have an intimate relationship with yeah. Fran and Gregory. Well, in 1963, um, Gillespie went to Italy to study the Italian masters of the Renaissance on two Fulbright grants. He studied in Florence and Rome and specifically studied Masaccio, Mantegna, Carpaccio, and Carlo Crivelli. Right there, things get interesting. Most of our listeners might not know of Carlo Crivelli. He was a Renaissance painter not included in Vasari's seminal work, The Life of Artists and Sculptors and Architects. It's a very long title in the Renaissance. Well, The the lives of them, yes. Crivelli worked in Umbria and La Marche, uh, among other places in Italy, but this artist was something special. Crivelli had an uncanny knack for incredible detail and exactness, and many of the uh, Renaissance artists were much looser in their realism, but Crivelli approached hyperrealism of religious subject, and Crivelli 
I could see that Gillespie would be all over this guy, had that obsession about the meticulous looking with the paint. And they had both an eerie sense of realism. Well, Gillespie was awarded many fellowships and grants, and he had his first fellowship at the Forum Gallery in New York City in 1966. And in 1970, he settled in the Williamsburg, Northampton, Massachusetts area. Does anybody know why he chose that area opposed to the hot areas in, in, in the contemporary art world like New York City or San Francisco? Sheila, any idea? Well, I never had the impression that Gregory saw himself as any part of an art scene. He had a New York gallery, the Forum Gallery, and he was supported with the sales from his paintings. And I think that Bella Fishko, his art dealer, guaranteed him a small income. And Money was, for all of us, so spare and hard to live on, but it was okay. When Gregory and Fran got back from Italy, now with Vincent and Leila, they moved to a farm in western Massachusetts. We drove up in the winter. There was so much snow. It was a big, cold, empty farmhouse. But the landscape suited Gregory. Old farms, stone walls. He could translate some of the romance of old Italy to Massachusetts. Gregory's studio was the living room, the whole living room. Franz was the dining room, and the kids were somewhere else in the house. Greg showed Vernon technique he figured out where he'd drop a little bit of turpentine on the paint when he was painting, and then he'd wave his hand over it to fog out the image. He was really into technique in Italy. I mean, even in art school, when we were being taught by abstract expressionists, Gregory didn't paint like anyone else. We had one of his paintings for them, and it was just refined and eerie and nothing about the darn gesture of the paint. The founder of Best Buy traded Gregory's paintings for appliances. That's great. (laughs) But they needed them. They had nothing. And I was so impressed that he had this kind of success. And I remember Gregory was glad for the appliances and especially the stereo. But he also said that he didn't want his art to be buried in private collections, that he wanted museum walls. I was amazed at this ambition. I was amazed at the Best Buy appliances and the concept of museum walls, which looking back was short-sighted because the art market and the museums are so fickle that most of Gregory's work that was purchased by these major museums, is in storage. His New York art dealer, Bella Bella Fishko, just loved him, and she showed the work that bordered on porn in the back room of her gallery. The best guy, this is a whole other story, he, he lent Vernon some of his collection for a show at Duke, and Vernon picked it up in our old Dodge van, and I think it was in Richmond, Virginia. And on the way home, the universal joint broke on the van. So I drove up halfway to Virginia oh, no. at night, and we chained the van to my station wagon. And I towed Vern, Vernon back to Durham. There was a life-size Dwayne Hansen rock star on the floor of the van. I opened the door, and there he was, lying on his back with his mic raised up to the ceiling. And that whole van was filled with valuable art, and no one even asked if we had insurance. Goodness, man. Well, only comes from Sheila Blake on the Artist Experience radio show. Well, his success continued with several Whitney Biennial shows, and in 1977 he showed at the Hirshhorn Museum, and while in Massachusetts, in Massachusetts, he was associated with this group of realist painters, and there was certainly a following with these realist painters. He was associated uh, with several big names in the realm of the hyperreal, sometimes called surreal, sometimes called magical. But really, Gillespie's work was described in all these ways, but he never really fit into one particular group. And I think, I mean, that's the uniqueness of his work, I think. And it's not easy to characterize. I mean, Gillespie spoke of of his need to be microscopic in detail at times, like depicting actually the pores of the skin and paint. Well, that's really very, very fantastic. But, you know, I mean, there was so much more in his likeness and, and, and convincing this, uh, of the subjects 
And his work pursued, um, I think, a much more complex psychological issues. And I think that's where he separates from these other realist painters. Very much so. Very much so. Well, when Gregory was 40, or he could have been 41, he was given a retrospective at the Hirshhorn Museum in Washington. It was great. We drove up for it. And from someplace in that crowd, a a woman yelled, Gregory, you're wearing a suit. And this tells you a lot. And Fran probably got him that suit in the thrift shop. Well, yeah, most of his paintings, he's shirtless. So that's that's probably one of the reasons. Well, I I want us to address this, Sheila, but he, you know, he was just prolific. And, And, you know... There was so much work coming out of this this guy, and 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 so many words come to mind when you read about him. I mean, words like weird or weirdness is so, and chaos and insanity and all these things. And you know, he's he's kind of throwing so much work out there, and and I see his body of work in almost like three phases, and I I want to concentrate on this obsessive need to paint oneself. To me, when you go through these catalogs of, of Gillespie, that, that's what I see, and I, 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 that interested me. And I wanted to talk about this direct, honest, contemplative self that he portrays. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really, really important. And again, the word meticulous comes up all the time with Gregory Gillespie. I mean... I was beginning to look at the work and I was saying, is this kind of some self-idolatry of the artist? What, what about this sort of self-sensuality, self-sexuality, uh, which comes through at times uh, in the psychological, psychology of oneself? And then I was saying, is it self-love? Is it self-hate? He's giving, you know, he's sending a lot of messages here. And uh, could we address this because, I mean... There, it's so highly consistent in his work. I mean, he brings the self-portrait in the 1980s and 70s up to a level that few people really attain. Right, right, that's right. And also, they were, I mean, they were not really photographic. They were beyond photographs. Yep. They had a kind of feeling that you could reach out and touch that skin and you know they were they they were there was so much kind of inner life in them that is really kind of disturbing except you can get right up and look in his eyes in those portraits yeah that's why i kind of brought up the word self-idolatry because there's a spiritual nature in the idol you know, and, and there's something, he, he puts something else into these portraits. It's, yes. yeah. it's, it, it, there is an eeriness to those. Yeah, well, yeah and it was uh, popular. I mean, you know, people saw something in it. And, and of course, he's, he's not just thinking about himself when, when he paints a self-portrait. He is thinking about how it's going to be looked at by others. And... And he's probably getting feedback that this is appreciated. This, this view, um, of, you know, he's an he's an example. He's a person, a representative of of today's modern person, and he captured something about modern life in in the self portrait. Mm. Well, For sure, yeah. To tell you the truth, I was much more interested in Gregory's still lifes. They had this quality of old Italy, like peeling walls, a, a table with checked check oilcloth, dusty root vegetables, and there'd be a window or an opening in the wall with something weird, something gushy, who knows, or little images of little people. And that part I ignored. There were pieces of organs or Fran lurking around, and I was just blown away that he could do this. It, I didn't question the content. A lot of the weirdness I completely ignored, just like I was a kid. And when a kid, <laughs> they see what they're ready to see. And yeah, I think yeah. I really wasn't ready to see what he was really going for. And now after all this time, I see he must have been so troubled, especially 
his paintings with Fran, not in any way prettified at all. Gregory painted everything life-size in his still life. So if he wanted to add something, he could just trace around something and put it in his still life. Well, Sheila, I want to address something here that you just brought up with these still lives. And and I want to, I want to say that Gregory Gillespie was really a, a really good student of art history because yeah. he's looking at Piero de la Francesca and the geometries of Renaissance art. And when you see these tables with a watermelon or a, a squash on mm-hmm. them or an eggplant, uh-huh. uh, and then he has this floor that's meticulously geometrically right. painted in, in perspective, you know, that's an amazing artist where he takes the the knowledge of what we would say, like, he brings the left brain and right brain together in these paintings, which which in some ways, there's a strictness to it. Yes. You know, and he really abides by that in, in a very, I would say, uh, I, mean, I mean, the the word I'm looking for is kind of... Um, He's he's dedicated himself to that vision, and in in these still lifes, they 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 again they put something he put something else into them. You know something that you brought up just before about our teachers being abstract expressionists, and it just occurs to me right now that we were really taught that all the activity of the painting happens with the paint on the painting, that there's a directness of it. You don't plan, you don't do preliminary drawings, you just react. And with Gregory, I remember him showing me that he used tracing paper for some of the, you know, for like the perspective of the floor. Oh, I believe it, yeah. And I was like, tracing paper. And I think that he was already not accepting that the work of his teachers that which was really dogma as the, what he wanted it sounds like he had a very mature vision yes for a young artist so and i wanted to talk about fran too that fran was an excellent painter i think i was flat out in awe of her still lifes she would do uh Flowers in vases with very intricate patterned cloths, and then the mirror mirroring the all of that in, intricacy. And I don't feel that way now. I see her work as formidable, but it's somehow dead. And when they came to visit us, and Fran was in North Carolina for a while, I was more blown away by her work than. Gregory's, but not anymore. Wow. So Fran uh, told me, she said, well, the thing that she had going for her was nobody could do her paintings. Nobody could copy her paintings because no one would work that hard. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and she was, <laughs> she was such a perfectionist that there was a painting that she sanded down a flower in a still life that was already finished, but she sanded down this flower and repainted it because it wasn't in the exact position she wanted. When Layla, her daughter, was about 10 or 11, Fran started a portrait of her, and it was so time-consuming that Layla started to get into puberty and her breasts started to grow, and Fran kept changing the painting, and Layla had to keep on posing I had my own boundaries with my kids, and I was questioning her judgment and that Layla had no privacy. And I never saw that painting finished. I really don't know whatever happened to it. Hmm. So Vernon and I were also really dedicated to our life as artists and to our work. But we did have a sort of more normal family life. We had dinner on the table every night, and we took very strange... vacations but we took vacations i'm not sure about their kids i don't know if they got enough attention and i do have a letter from greg that was saying that they moved from the farm into the town for the kids social sexual life 
Oh, wow, that's interesting. Yes. Well, if you just joined us, today we're talking about the life and legacy of Gregory Gillespie, an American uh, artist that's sometimes called a magic realist, a realist, and uh, a painter that Sheila actually knew. And um, we're going to uh, continue talking a, a little about uh, more of his, his figurative work, and uh, and he and we've kind of touched on this a little, but he definitely had his own niche. And I wanted to talk about this because I was in college in the 1970s, and figurative painting was definitely at Brooklyn College where I was at. But it, it, it came in in the form of, let's say, artists like Philip Perlstein, Alice Neal, Nell Blaine, Leonard Anderson, and Alan Feltis, and others were doing figurative work. But Gregory Gillespie's work was about the figure, but he was doing it again in a different way. He had another personal vision, which I think is a really important part of his legacy. And Gregory Gillespie's vision is always evolving. And that, to me, is really special, that it was always growing into something else. And again, you know, it was still growing, but it always had that meticulous nature. And could you give us any insight, Sheila, about the manner of his painting? Because a lot of his paintings have his palette, has his studio. He has a lot of, uh, you know, self-portraits in his space. Could you kind of give our listeners a little about that? Uh, Any particular insights that you might have seen? Well, I would say that one thing about Gregory, as I knew him, of course, just over a, a long period of time, but only in certain times, certain days, that he was incredibly honest. And I think that those, those self-portraits are all about that. He is not going to flinch from anything. And uh, I'll also tell you that one time he came to uh, to Duke to give a talk. He came sometimes occasionally and he gave a talk to my students and uh they asked him about his work and he said well i get up in the morning and i smoke dope and i paint for 70 hours a week and i thought i wish you hadn't said that (laughs) because they didn't have what gregory had that is not a great idea you know for for these students well he was honest but he was also fearless yes yes (laughs) You know, this meticulous manner that you talk about, uh, the detail, the wrinkles, the skin, the pores, uh, he's putting in detail that we normally don't see. We normally don't. We smooth it out because we want to make, we want to make, you know, who we're looking at. We want to make them look good. We want them to be pretty. So, uh, I mean, if you, even if you have 20-20 vision, you know, when I had it, um, I didn't look at those details. I remembered this poem uh, by Kenneth Koch. Uh, it was published in Poetry Magazine about 50 years ago, and I still have it. It's an amusing one. It's called On Beauty, and he talks about uh, many different ideas about beauty. And so, But here's just a few, a short <coughs> section of it. Beauty quite naturally seems as if it would be beautiful no matter how we looked at it. But this is not always true. Take a microscope to many varieties of beauty and they are gone. A young girl's lovely complexion, for example, reveals gigantic pores, hideously, gapingly embedded in her, as Gulliver among the Brobdingnagians observed. And Put some of her golden hair under the microscope. Huge, portentous, menacing tubes. (laughs) But since our eyes aren't microscopic, who cares? A certain sanity is necessary for life, and even our deepest studies need not carry us beyond a certain place, i.e., right here, the place where we would get microscopic eyes. That's terrific. That is totally appropriate with Gregory for Gregory Gillespie's work. Well, a lot of things that come up in his interviews uh, and some articles uh, about him was this fact that he came from a very dysfunctional home with a, 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 a clinically, a mentally unstable mom and an alcoholic father. And he said, and I quote, 
I look around at the images I paint now, I see Catholicism, insanity, chaos, and weirdness. It's natural for me to create these images. It's almost as if, since there was so much chaos in my childhood, my job as an artist is to make it beautiful, to give it back some order and stability, and to make a living from it. So my job is to turn chaos and pain into art. End quote. Uh, said by Gregory Gillespie. And I'd like to address this here because there are so many artists and people that don't prescribe to this philosophy about making art. I actually do. I really, that's to me is one of the reasons why Gregory Gillespie is a great artist. In his extraordinary pain, I think, there is an extraordinary fearlessness in creating the image. And it's something like you just said a few minutes ago, Sheila. Nothing, he never flinched. And, and when you, and, and, and I think in, so, in some ways his work is about a search for love and higher love. And, and I think this is so important about him being loved. And when he puts it out on the canvas, it's how he sees the love coming from the response to his canvases. And to me, that's an evolution. You know, in one's life as a painter, this idea of bringing love into your work and how it's perceived in your work, I think that's like his legacy in some ways. I mean, but it's also about the higher love because at the end of his life, he was searching for other kinds of love, you know, and we'll talk about that a little later in the show. I don't know, what do you think about that? Well, you know, it could be that in art as in poetry, one of the main goals is to present someone as being valued um, and to present a life as being valued. Uh, even a life with pain, uh, I mean, the pain goes into the art and then it's mixed and cooked, and what comes out is not painful. It's, it's pleasurable, and we're fascinated by this truth. We're fascinated by the truth that's revealed to us, say, I mean, for example, in short stories, you, you read a short story, I mean, all, almost all the people in short stories are behaving uh, badly, uh, or at least, or foolishly or something, but we're fascinated with it. And so we're interested in images which capture some aspect of the truth of our lives. Mm. Oh, for sure. In the self-portraits, Gregory was showing an honest person. Uh, he was handsome, but I, maybe he didn't have charisma. He didn't show it. There's no very little charisma in the self-portrait. So, so it's an artist adrift in the world. Uh, maybe Sheila and the other art students uh, knew him as a star, but I think in the self-portraits we see a humble person. But you know, a lot of self-portraits of famous, more famous artists uh, had that same quality. I'm thinking uh, Rembrandt. Bonard, Goya, I mean, you know, maybe they were dashing when they were young, but in middle age, you see all the dashes gone. And that's sort of, uh, Gregory started there. <laughs> and so, like I said earlier, maybe this was a quality that his collectors and, and the people who admired his work viewed as a quality of, that shone out as something of the time that they valued and that should be valued. Mm -hmm. Well, Peter, I think that's so right on target. To me, when you're talking about this, I think what what Gregory was doing was he's showing himself with, you know, what, that expression, warts and all. He's mm -hmm. showing, and then you're going to love him because look what he can do with that. Like, mm -hmm. it's really phenomenal. And so he, I hope he felt that love. Um, but as far as Gregory's legacy, I'm going to mention this, talk about it. In April in 2000, I got a call from my old friend, Marilyn, who went to Cooper Union with me, and she told me that Gregory had killed himself. I hadn't seen him in years, and anything I can think of, and of course, I think about it all the time, what? Why did he do that? I, you know, I spoke to somebody who knew him currently, and 
and talked about what a generous person he was, which he was, you know. I mean, when we talk about uh, being a star, Gregory never acted like a star. Mm. He And that was part of the wonder of him, is that he just could go, oh, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm starting to get a pain in my liver. And, you know, he was hilarious and, and not at all vain, or at least not to me. But I, anything I can say about it would be just be conjecture because life can be unbearably painful, but life is also precious. And I would really hate to project my own thoughts onto something I couldn't possibly know about any more than I could possibly have done the paintings that Gregory did. I like to think that he'd done what he wanted to do with his life. And I'm just so sorry. Right. You know, um, I don't know if this is relevant, but uh, the the writer Andre Debuse III um, described himself as a survivor of suicide. Uh, he used that phrase to make what to him was an extremely important distinction. I mean, most of us think of suicide as a choice, but the person is, you know, in too much pain uh, and decides to end the pain. But uh, Debus uh, had a different uh, view. He said, um, "There's no rational, there's no process of rational choosing. Uh, it's a constant condition. Uh, the condition is in control, or trying to be in control, always pushing you, always pushing you into, you know, taking the next step." It, it's it's hard to hard to know, hard to imagine, hard for us to imagine what it what it is. Well, we're going to take a short break, and we're going to come back and talk about Gregory Gillespie's other influences in his spiritual search, his use of photographs and collage, and uh, and it's going to tie into our last program, which we talked about the camera never lies and how. Gregory Gillespie used photographs in a different way. So we'll be right back. This is Artist Experience. I'm Sheila Blake with my co-host, Tom Sinakis, and with my husband, Peter Blake. Today, we're talking about the life and legacy of Gregory Gillespie, an American realist painter whom I knew. So I just want to talk about more about what a nice, generous, regular person Gregory was. While Vernon and I were teaching at Duke, he'd come down occasionally and give a talk and, or visit with Fran. And... He was always, to me, complimentary of my paintings and helpful. He asked his dealer to include me in a new talent show, and I had five drawings there in Fantastic. New York. Was it? I mean, that's oh, what I'm that's talking generous. about. That's it was generous. lovely. And I imagine he did that what he could do for his friends. It wasn't just me, I'm sure. And uh, when they came down to stay with us, Vernon and I were at the end of our marriage, and we were trying to hold it together for the company, for Fran and Greg. But I told them what was going on. I said, if things seem uncomfortable, it didn't have anything to do with them. But Fran fussed over Greg way worse than any helicopter mom. Usually would cut his meat and feed it to him, say, Gregory, eat this meat. Go ahead, just one more piece. And I thought, boy, compared to them, we have a pretty regular marriage. (laughs) (laughs) And after he and Fran got divorced, he told me that he'd done whatever he could to set Fran up financially with a studio and money for 10 years. And soon after... Vernon traded places with Fran for his sabbatical semester so that Fran came down to Durham and Vernon went up to New York. I was really excited to have Fran there because of the painter that she was and what an opportunity for me to learn from her. 
And it was. She was living close to me, and I assumed we'd be friends, so I took her to yoga class with me, and I introduced her to my friends. But I realized she wasn't telling the truth to people, to my friends. She was talking about being destitute, that Gregory left her without a penny, and she needed help with everything, and got very good at getting people to do things for her. I don't know where her kids were, they were teenagers by then, so were mine. But we never even got that close enough to have that conversation. So after the sabbatical year, Gregory came down to visit. He was probably there to give a talk, and he came to my studio, and he asked me if I had gotten close to Franny. And I pretended that I didn't hear him, and he asked me again. He said, so, do you and Franny be friends, huh? And I said, I just I thought we would, but she was too crazy. And Gregory said, yeah, that's what everyone finds. That's what a really nice guy Gregory was, because he, he left, let me off the hook. I didn't have to feel bad about it, which I had. Wow. Well, they, again, this is that intimacy that you guys had. Oh, wow. I mentioned that uh, Gregory Gillespie's evolution has led to works in the 1990s uh, deal with uh, spiritualities, sexuality, and psychology. And most coincidentally, I was dealing with the same exact themes in my work, totally paralleling my my evolution as an artist. So my interest in um, Gregory Gillespie's work was real. Well, while Gillespie's early works were influenced by the artists of the Renaissance, like Masaccio, Mantegna, and Crivelli, I was looking more at uh, medieval Byzantine early Renaissance artists like Duccio, El Greco, and others. Well, Gillespie had long abandoned his Catholicism, yet forms of architecture and ritual appear in his later work. Shrines, altars, prayer niches were something that Gillespie was very familiar with in his studies in Italy, because they were all over the place. Well, then he had a growing interest in Buddhism and Hinduism, and that was new and evolving. And of course, there was works with Japanese imagery in them, and spirituality forms from the Far East. Well, these spiritual traditions are steeped in architecture and ritual as well. Eastern thought, the mandalas or the mandoras, the third eye, which is known as the Anya Chakra that we see in Indian Buddhism and Hinduism, and Gillespie took off with these imagers. I mean, he had a whole new cauldron of historic spirituality to deal with, and it's a vast one. It opened up a whole new area for Gillespie, and then there were the things like the auras, the chakras, the polyistic deities, and there's so much more. And I've got to say that he mixes them up. He doesn't put just one kind of spirituality in the same kind of painting. And this is something I noticed in some of his later works, that he has these little painted-in drawings from almost medieval uh, kind of legacies that are different. And, and to me, that's fascinating. He has like kind of a kitchen sink of spirituality in some of these works. And one of the things that caught my eye again in the 1990s that Gregory Gillespie was doing at the same exact time with his his background tones are mimicking gold. They're mimicking metallic colors. And as you would see, certainly in Italy, but of course in a, in a Buddhist uh, or a Hindu temple where uh, precious metals are really vibrant. And so he's taking that kind of tonality, which in many ways gold could, could, could turn into a neutral tone. And he, he puts everything in these niches and these new entrances into otherworldly states. And I really enjoy those paintings. And they're very different for the time. And the other thing is, as he's doing these more spiritual kind of psychosexual works, there's a lot more movement in the works. He has, you know, like you see in, in, in Eastern mysticism, there's a lot of movement, you know, in the work, and, and they're much more loosely painted. And also, there's that dreamlike quality that you get in those spiritualities, right? I mean, they're so, it's so evident. And yet, 
there's also a spiritual kind of chaos, which you also get in some of these works, a lot of different imagery. And you know what conjured up to me uh, when I was looking at a lot of these uh, late paintings was, you know, the famous Bible story from the Old Testament of Jacob wrestling with the angel. And in some ways, I see Gregory Gillespie is wrestling with these kinds of spirituality. And to me, that's very exciting for an artist to tackle. I mean, and did he find peace in in, in this kind of visual chaos of spirituality? Uh, Was there resolution found in the madness of all these holy images? I don't know, but they are so engaging. Yeah, I don't know either. That's a very interesting viewpoint. What what struck me is how he, as Wallace Stevens said, the the artist is is looking for what will suffice, looking for a way a way to to capture what you're what you're interested in in a way that works in the art. So I thought I would read a Wallace Stevens poem because he really understood this. So in this poem, Wallace Stevens, this is The Planet on the Table. This is late in his life. His collected poems has been published, and that is perhaps The Planet on the Table, a world of poems. And he refers to himself in the first line as Ariel, which is interesting because earlier he had referred to himself as Caliban, in an earlier poem, but now he's Ariel. Ariel was glad he had written his poems. They were of a remembered time or of something seen that he liked. Other makings of the sun were waste and welter and the ripe shrub writhed. His self and the sun were one and his poems, although makings of himself, were no less makings of the sun. It was not important that they survive. What mattered was that they should bear some lineament or character, some affluence, if only half perceived, in the poverty of their words, of the planet of which they were part. Well, thank you, Peter. so there are elements of Gregory Gillespie's paintings that have, you know, angel wings or yeah. the movement of an angel wing, and uh, that's yeah. that's perfect. Uh, well, in our last show, we discussed the use of the photograph as a tool that artists use, and and we spoke about the photorealists and. Gillespie, for sure, is a realist of sorts, and we talked about all those labels that were given, but he also used photograph in in his works, especially in the later works, and uh, he never considered himself a collagist, like I said earlier in the program, and he was a painter, like he would paint over the photographs. He would lay them on the canvas, and he would alter them in some ways, and he manipulated, he cut them out, he vignetted them onto the canvas, and, and, and many of those works kind of are an, in a different realm than so many of the other artists. And, and I, I like this diversion uh, by uh, Gregory Gillespie because it, it, it kind of breaks him out of the, uh, in some ways, the meticulous nature of his work. It's, it's a little kind of, you know, they're cut out and stuff like that. But something I wanted to address, which I was not familiar with, uh, in, in reviewing his work for the show, and that was these interesting landscapes. I don't know. I, I mean, I was already attracted to you know Gregory Gillespie's work, but these were an other avenue that I did not know about. These forested, dark, yeah. you know, landscape. It was like you entered into a dark space. Uh, I mentioned you know, earlier that they had a kind of a, a Bruegel kind of, you know, kind of feel to them, but in in, in, a, in, a, in a, a darker space. And they, I was also thinking of, in some ways, uh, Hieronymus Bosch. Uh-huh. You know, you're entering into a kind of a hellish natural environment. And I, I have to say, they, they knock me out. Yeah. I don't know how much of his work is in this landscape, but they just definitely... 
knock me out. Uh, what do you think about them? Well, there's one. There's one at the Portrait Gallery. It's the Smithsonian, a small landscape that I, gosh, it's the greens in there and the the depth of the greens. It is really wonderful. I love that landscape. Yeah, there's an intense yeah. color. There's an intense color in these darks. Yeah, like how, how many uh, how many hues of green could you get in there? Right. And and he does it really well. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, well, I know Greg used photographs, and sometimes he worked on top of photographs. I remember. Uh, I remember that before that, with the self-portraits, Fran, he would get Fran to take pictures and pictures of his hands. And they look oddly awkward because he wasn't able to paint one hand over the other. Um, and so he would have his hands kind of like laid out in France and he looks like a junkie, which he did. And, and then later, when Fran was mad at Greg, she'd say, you better put more paint on those photographs because Bella Fishko was getting mad. You need to put more paint to hide the photograph. And so, but there was a lot, she was mad anyway. But the thing about Gregory, he did whatever it took to get what he wanted. There were no rules. And that, I always have to get beyond my own silly rules. If he wanted to trace something, if he wanted to photograph something, whatever it took what? to get what he wanted. And that, to me, is a lesson that he gave me. Oh, that, that's a wonderful lesson yeah. of, to any artist. Well, today we've had a special program talking about the artist Gregory Gillespie, who, uh, who uh, at age 63, uh, when he passed away, was was really gave us so much of a legacy with his powerful work uh, and his life. Although it ended in tragedy, his work lives on uh, with beauty and a lot of introspection. And I've always had an eye for Gregory Gillespie's work. I mean, his search to know himself, his spiritual worlds, and the things that were important to him. I really hold really true to myself, and, and, and this is the life and journey of an artist, a search in an evolution, and these complexities, enigmatic psychologies that make up a human being are so unique and, and they're so diverse, and Gregory Gillespie is just that unique artist that makes all the stuff that was handed to him in his life, and he puts it forth, you know, unapologetically with beauty and goodness. And I think that's his legacy. And, um, well, uh, your insights, Sheila, I can't thank you enough for those uh, fortuitous insights and in, in, in your life journey for that. And, Tom, uh, you too. Thank you for everything you've said. Well, it's you know, really he really good. moved me as a young artist. And, you know, there's so many artists that go on that solitary path. Mm -hmm. And Gregory Gillespie was definitely on a solitary mm -hmm. path. And, you know, we we could talk about Van Gogh. We could talk about Goyer. In some way, they were on solitary paths. But Gregory Gillespie is solid as a modern artist and I think his story is important, and I think his, his story needs to be told, and his art needs to remain uh, for us for, with us forever because it, it's still as, as vibrant and, and important as it could be. Well, stay tuned to our next exciting programming here at WOW Tacoma Radio 94.3. We invite you to visit uh, the website tacomaradio.org and look at our program schedule. There's so much fantastic music, talk shows, interviews, and community news from so many diverse people at a radio station. Please go online and see the programming. Experience art and the visual in everything you do, and thanks for listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. Mai deserte così Io non ti conosco Eppure so chi sei Tu che vivi ormai lontano E a un passo da me So
sperare Let's show 